everybody. Welcome back to Carry On The Podcast. This is a momentous podcast episode because one, it is my first in 2020, so I took a little break. My last one was in October 2019. Um, took off, oh my god, a lot of months. But I'm kind of using this podcast as a work when I'm in the mood type of thing. Um, so welcome back 2020. And a, another reason this is a little more notable is because um, we're stuck in uh, quarantine, um, quarantine, but I keep calling it Valentine, which is quarantine. So with that being said, welcome back 2020 and hopefully everyone is kind of surviving the um, quarantine. We will talk a little bit about that. If not this episode, then definitely next, probably next once I do some more homework, but everything is changing so quickly so fast but I will just go ahead and say this is a lot this is a really 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 big deal the way that the housing market kind of had their crisis in 2008 is what the whole travel and tourism industry will have now but the difference is that this one will last a little bit longer because it just takes so long to rebound from any sort of deficit in the travel industry because um let's take Chipotle for example when that kind of crisis happened and their their meat wasn't good I don't really know but something about Chipotle's meat everyone stopped eating there the second people start gaining confidence in Chipotle it's pretty quick for you to go to Chipotle and order something when people for people to gain confidence in the travel market they have to go book and you're not traveling the same weekend that you're booking or the same day that you're booking you're traveling in six months nine months 12 months ahead of time so by the time people actually reap the benefit of your dollar is a very long time that's why it's a little bit of a bigger deal but anyway, that is um, kind of all I have for this episode for the quarant- quarantine, quarantine. Um, oh my god, now I can't stop saying it like freaking Valentine. Quarantine, quarantine. That's all I have for this one. Um, today's episode, we are going to talk about Peru. So there's a few reasons that I'm kind of in the mood to talk about Peru today. One, probably is because I'm wearing the shorts that I wore for every day I was in Peru. Um... Yes, I have the picture on my Instagram of how dirty my clothes were when I washed them, and it was disgusting. Also wearing my sweater from Peru. So I figured today was a good time. I was also just looking at my highlights Instagram story of Peru, and I feel like people either don't know much about it, or they have a preconceived notion of it. And we went to a few different cities, I think about four total in Peru, and every single one was different from the next one. Um, so we're going to dive into that today and kind of debunk some of the myths and give everyone a better picture of really what Peru is and what they have to offer. So first, let's start off with some logistics of my Peru trip. I went in May 2019, and if I had one grievance with everyone on the internet about, um, I did a lot of like watching vlogs about Peru, and if I have like one qualm with everyone... No one, um, it's hard to find the timestamps for some of the videos online of other people that went, uh, to Peru, and that is beyond frustrating because Peru's weather is notoriously chaotic, and it's also in the southern hemisphere, meaning that the seasons are switched. So although I was going in May, it was, um, in between, it was a shoulder season, so it was in between their dry and their wet season, and it was in between their summer and their winter, so it was a very confusing time, which, um, is, I said it's a shoulder season, but their their winter is their peak season meaning that it's our summer so it's just very confusing weather-wise so um it went in may 2019 and it was 
colder than I anticipated. Um, I want to say it was like 40, 50, sorry, not 40, 50, 60, and 70 degrees, I would say. But again, each city was just so different. It depends on the altitude. So when we landed in Lima, Lima is uh, sea level, so, you know, zero altitude. And it was um, gray the whole time that we were there and damp. Like, I came from Florida, and I mean, this was the most humid I've ever been, to a point where if your clothes got wet, they were never dry. So, that was Lima, and then we went to Cusco, which is uh, the starting area for the any of your hikes to Machu Picchu. Um, it's the major city, but it's not necessarily the starting city. And then we went to um, a few different other places, one spot in the desert, one spot near the beach... Um, both of those were sunny and are probably warmest two cities. And as far as the logistics of Peru, so I flew from um, Orlando direct into Lima. And I don't remember being it massively expensive. I think it was under 500 round trip. I don't know off the top of my head what the going rate is for South American flights, but I know that I got very lucky flying direct out of MCO, which is a relatively small airport in Orlando. Um, and one thing to note about flying into Lima and maybe other South American countries is that it is known that all flights arrive really, really late at night. So my flight was actually kind of earlier of the peak because I landed at 10 p.m. Where most flights are 11 p.m., midnight, and 1 a.m. Um, so if you're going by yourself and you tell someone, oh, I'm landing in this foreign country where I don't speak the language at 11 p.m. at night, usually that's exactly what you would want to avoid. However, it's um, when I noticed it at 10 p.m., it was almost like it was Lima's busiest time at the airport. Taxis were just full. There was plenty of people. It was as if I landed at 4 p.m. on a Sunday. So, um, Direct flight. It just makes it a little bit interesting with the hotels. You have to make sure when you're checking, when you're booking, um, that they have a 24-hour reservation, a uh, 24-hour front desk. Or uh, just give them a call and you can ask them. And if the language is a barrier, give them an email and ask them if what time your flight is expected to land and will you be able to check in at that time. Um, usually they can have someone meet you if they're not a 24-hour front desk. But the bigger hotels will usually be a 24-hour front desk. So some highlights of Lima. Um, the weather is not one of them. The weather was probably a um, low point in Lima. It is kind of like I said, it's rare that the sun comes out, although it is a coastal city. Um, you're not going to see the sun too much like you would in Florida or California, uh, even though it is a big surfing city. It was very great. And I mean, it was like humid, like I've never seen before. Like I literally mean my clothes, your clothes would not dry and you would feel it the second you would come out of the shower. Um, so it made it just a little bit uncomfortable, but Lima, um, similar to San Jose and Costa Rica, Lima a little bit less so, but a lot of these cities that have, um, that are the main bases for some of these countries are not necessarily vacation spots that you're going to hang out in, especially San Jose, Costa Rica. They're more of just cities to land in because they have their airport. You do an overnight to get yourself situated and then you keep on moving. You're really not going to spend too much time in um, Lima. However, I will say the absolute peak to Lima, which is why people do spend time there, one, besides the fact that it's a major city, is the food scene. Oh my god, I mean, every restaurant we went to, one after the other, after the other, after the other, was fantastic. 
and different and flavorful and insane. The pictures are on my Instagram as well as some video footage on my YouTube. Um, Emily Allen Travels on YouTube has a video of our time in Lima. The food is outrageous, especially because it's a coastal city, so it's just the most perfect fish ever. Um, there is some notable museums and some other kind of sites in Lima. But again, like I said, you're going to stay there for maybe a night or two, but uh, you're not going to base your vacation around Lima the way you would New York or um, big cities in the U.S. And as far as the logistics of traveling around Peru, um, Peru is not a massive country in South America, but it is, you know, larger than, of course, anything in Central America, but not as large as Brazil, um, much smaller than that. However, you don't really realize, um, just because of the infrastructure, everything is very far away from each other. So when you go and you look up those lists of like top 10 things to do in Peru or ideal 14 day scenario in Peru, you're going to see a lot of things that are eight hours apart from each other driving or 12 hours or in most cases anywhere from 20 to 24 hours away from each other driving. Um, I don't know if that is because there is just not as much highway infrastructure, so it's not like they're hitting too many direct routes, but overnight buses are very, very common in Peru, so you would just hop on one and kind of do a loop around the major tourist sites in Peru, and um, the seats are like fully reclined, or not fully, but it's no bus at the end of the day, but they're pretty reclinable. And then it has your bathroom and then it just, you kind of just get on it and you keep going from anywhere up to like 16 hours, I would say. With those driving times, you're not really going to rent a car in Peru. Driving is um, kind of like any other country, but a little bit more crazy. And the biggest takeaway I remember from Peru is the amount of noise pollution from the cars. Um, whether you're in Lima, which is, you know, obviously a densely populated city with a lot of just like fast, small cars or you are in the middle of nowhere in Paracas, the beach town, and there will be not a soul on the road except one car, and I will guarantee you that car will honk. The honking in Peru, maybe it's all of South America, I don't know. This is my first country in South America. The honking is outrageous, 24-7, all day, every day, no matter what. You hear it, I don't know if it's like, it's the equivalent of like waving to someone, I guess. It's just, it's consistent, it's always there. That has nothing to do with it, but moral of the story is that I don't hear too many stories of people renting cars, and because the buses are just so much the norm, it's just easier to take a bus. Or the other option, which is the option that I took, which was flying. So I took a little bit of a longer bus to get to the desert and the beach town, but to get to Cusco, which is a 24-hour drive, um, really simple flights from Lima to Cusco, a little bit under $100, probably about 75 U.S., um, to get there, takes two hours, everyone does it, not two hours, maybe two hours, I don't know, really, like, somewhere around that time, I think from New Jersey to Florida, everyone does it, it's normal, there's plenty of fights, just hop on, Cusco Airport is very interesting, because, so, Cusco's elevation is significantly higher than Lima's, because that is when you're really going to get into the mountains, so weather is going to be cooler, um, the sun is going to be a little more powerful, although it's not as hot. So for some kind of measurement, Lima is right on the ocean level. Cusco is a, lo a little bit over 11,000 feet in altitude, which is um, 
3,400 meters. So that is really high. That's when you're going to start to feel anything with altitude sickness. So speaking of altitude sickness will bring me to my next um, point of logistics when planning a trip to Peru. And it is pre-Peru prep. Um, some things I did to prepare for Peru. It's suggested if you're going to go on a hike that you work out and do some stair incline. Stairs single-handedly the most important portion of workout to do. Prepping for any sort of trek in Peru. Um, I didn't. I'm relatively healthy. I could have. There's not too many instances where you absolutely need to. But anytime that you work out for something, it'll just make it more enjoyable because it will feel less labor-intensive when you actually do it. However, we all got through it fine. None of us really worked out for it. Um, seeing a travel doctor was a major, major component before going to Peru. Because Peru is half mountains, half rainforest. So your northern, your northeast portion of Peru is going to be um, bordering the Amazon rainforest. Which, um, anytime you have a rainforest or a humid climate like Peru, mosquitoes. So you're going to look at... What happens if you get malaria, which is very painful? Do you need your yellow fever vaccine, which is only really comes up in discussion when you're going to um, countries in Africa? However, for Peru, it also comes up, especially if you're going to that anything north of Lima. Um, also need to see a travel doctor for altitude sickness pills. So let's start with yellow fever. Yellow fever, like I said, it's it's um, a necessity to get into most countries. You have to you get like a yellow fever passport little book thing when you get your vaccine. It's a necessity for most countries in Africa, and it is recommended for any countries north of Lima and Peru. Um, it's a little bit pricey, however, it's good from anywhere to ten years for your lifetime, not one hundred percent. So definitely check with your travel doctor. Um, I keep saying travel doctor, so you can just look up travel doctor and actually it'll pop up some local ones for you, especially if you live in a big city. I live in Orlando where there's a lot of tourists, so it's so easy for me to find one. Also, if you're still in school and your school offers any sort of study abroad program, your school probably has a travel doctor on campus. That So for that, you just book an appointment. You see, this is where I'm going. These are when I'm going. You want to go usually about anywhere from 90 to 60 days out before you leave. I guess 90 to 30. That way, if they need to do any prescriptions or any shots, and they need to pace out those shots, they can do that. Um, really easy to find a travel doctor. So, I called, made an appointment, I brought my dates with me when I was going, and all the cities that I was going to, and any activities that I was doing. So, yellow fever was recommended, but because of how long it lasts, um, I went ahead and got that vaccine, which is a shot form. And then I think I... Did I get one more... I don't know if I got one more or not. Also, it's good to come with a list of the vaccines that you already got um, when you were younger. Just have an idea of what you already had. They might ask. So, obviously, you don't want to double up. So, I definitely got my yellow fever. And then I got a prescription for altitude sickness pills. Altitude sickness pills. So, so for altitude sickness, um, uh, high altitude is considered anything from 8,000 to 12,000 feet above sea level. And very high altitude, which is when you're really going to feel a little bit of pain, is um, 12,000 feet and up. Um, so, for example, New York City is 33 feet in elevation. 
where Denver is about 5,000 feet, Grand Canyon is a little over, it's uh, 6,600 feet. So nothing quite in the U.S. is going to be as high as Cusco, which uh, came in at 11,000 feet. So I went to my travel doctor, and I, obviously the second you um, say Peru, most of most everyone is like, okay, are you leaving Lima? You will need altitude sickness pills. Altitude sickness is only preventable. It's not curable. That is very important. It is only preventable. Once you start feeling the symptoms of altitude sickness, there is nothing you can do besides climbing down that will, re- that will relieve altitude sickness. I want to stress that because altitude sickness can suck very, very much. You'll be hugging the toilet and you will just want to peel over and it'll, it'll it'll ruin the vacation so when you get altitude sickness pills you'll usually get so if you're going to be in altitude for four days which was the amount of time i was in cusco they'll probably give you five or six probably six days if not seven of altitude sickness pills because you usually start one to two days before you hit the altitude to prep your body on the medicine and then you finish off one day after so you're completely covering the time you're in altitude Um, it was very mathematical. I had to get a notebook of, okay, at what time do I start taking them? You take them at the same time each day. I think you take one in the morning, maybe one at night. Um, they pace it out. It's, there's a lot of instructions when it comes to altitude sickness. Just write them down, turn on your watch and follow it because it's so much easier to follow it than to deal with the repercussions of it. Because again, you can alleviate some of it. You could take a Pepto-Bismol, you can drink water and sleep it off. But it's really not going to get better if you already have it until you get down to the elevation. So with that being said, some um, symptoms of altitude sickness, dizzy, um, confusion, you lose your breath, you get shortness of breath, which is not necessarily altitude sickness. It's just kind of a sign of the altitude because of lower oxygen levels. Um, But because of lower oxygen levels, you also get a really bad headache and you might get nauseous. So I took my altitude sickness pills really vigilantly before I hit the altitude and then after a few days in the altitude, I relaxed a little bit because I felt fine. Um, I will say altitude sickness pills really don't have too much of a side effect, they're not harming, they're not going to make you tired, they're not going to knock you out. However, when you are in altitude, I don't know if it's because of the altitude they believe, it's the the altitude sickness pills. They make your hands and your feet tingle like they're asleep, which I know is like a really, it really sounds like cringy, which it is, um, especially when you're carrying trekking poles to have your hands tingle for like eight hours is not the most fun. It doesn't hurt as bad, but you feel it and it's just kind of like annoying and it feels like they're cold because they won't stop tingling. And it happens to everyone at like different portions. So some people be like, oh my God, my right foot is just going crazy. Or I'd be laying down in bed at night and I'm like, oh my God, my shoulders are so tingly. Again, nothing bad happens to you with altitude sickness pills. It's just, that's what we noticed was one of our side effects. I will do another podcast about actually trekking the Inca Trail. But um, to finish up on my pre-Peru prep list, hiking boots, break them in. Wear them every day. Wear them to work. Break them in. That's another thing that you won't notice is a problem until it starts ruining your vacation. Then it'll become a big problem and there's nothing you can do about it besides break them in ahead of time. Um, They're getting a little better. Newer models of hiking shoes we need less breaking in, but you never know where you're going to get those blisters. And as someone I read somewhere online famously said, it is not about the mountain in front of you. 
but the pebble in your shoe. And I couldn't be more true for annoying pair of shoes. Okay, so some highlights of Peru right off the bat. If you know absolutely nothing, I'm going to go ahead and say the food, the nature, and the nature. Um, Peru is just filled with UNESCO World Heritage Sites. You have Machu Picchu, which is not a wonder of the world, but if the wonder of the world was expanded to 20 items instead of 7, it would be on there. Um, it is on the UNESCO World Heritage Site, one of the, like the top 10 places to see by Lonely Planet. So nature is going to be a big one. Also because there's such a variation in it. So you have um, the northeast region, which is your rainforest region, which is your Amazon. And then you're going to have um, your Lima area, which is more metropolitan. Then you go a little bit more south. Um, if you go along the coast, you're going to hit really fantastic beach towns, uh, famous surfing, world famous spots for that. Um, you go south and then to the east, you're going to hit deserts, uh, that famous one that I don't even know if I can pronounce, but if you've ever seen the pictures on Instagram of complete sand dunes and then one tiny town with a big lake on the inside, that's it. It's in Peru. Um, it's in just a land of desert. Okay, here it is. I'm going to pronounce it. Let's see. Oh my god, can Google pronounce it for me? Maybe. Uh, a small desert oasis and a tiny village just west of the city of Inca in south southwest Peru. Covered in palm trees. It is covered in palm trees. It is very touristy and you only made one day there. But it is unreal and the area surrounding it is also unreal. So it is one of those tourist reasons because it is amazing. Not because tourists just go there because they do. There's a reason. Okay, are you ready, guys? Oh, she had a very thick accent when she pronounced that. Oh, Wakachina. That is the desert oasis in Peru. If you ever look at the spelling of it, you can send me a video of you trying to pronounce it because it's hard. Um, and then below that will be Cusco, which is your mountain region, your cold region, snow-capped mountains. So with all of that, nature is Peru's number one driver on tourism. Um, number two, which is a little more unknown, is going to be the food scene. So uh, Lima, seafood. Steak to seafood. And you really can't go wrong with any cuisine in Lima because it's such a big city. If you're in Lima, we got these beautiful bio buns at this little shack. It's very indie, food scene, um, a little bit more of, there is some significant areas of fine dining, so things can get a little pricier in Lima because it's a city, but uh, just a massive range of all different options, but you're going to go with fish. Uh, and then as you get further out of Lima, uh, like I said, Peru was so big it took hours and to get between you know one city to another or one village to another that's when you're going to avoid fish if you can't see the ocean in peru don't get fish there's better fish in other cities don't get it in the desert there's no fish in the desert do not get it um that's where you're going to get your things like your quinoa and your chicken and i will note there is um every country whether or not they are kind of normal to us in the U.S. Um, every country, every culture has their things about them. And in Peru, a delicacy is the guinea pig, which I know that we keep as house pets here in the U.S. Um, 
if you don't want to eat guinea pig, it is very easy to avoid. It is more of like a tour. Obviously, they eat it as a delicacy, but when you see it in those big cities, they kind of use it as like a tourist um, factor, which I don't really like. If you're going to eat it, eat it properly like they will. Don't eat it because it's a dare or you want to have this like gross factor on your Instagram of you holding up the guinea pig and eating it. Uh, I did not eat it. Did I? I do know that it tastes similar to liver in that dark meat, um, really rich, rich sense. So that's guinea pig. That's what you're going to see in countries, uh, sorry, cities and villages outside of the uh, coastal cities will be... Um, more of a heavier cuisine like that. Also, a lot of grains. And, oh my god. I can't believe I waited this long to say this. Corn. Jesus. That's why I honestly got off the couch and started podcasting this episode in Peru. Because I saw a picture of the corn. Um, everyone knows how corn reacts with your body. Everyone knows. Just look down. When I say I... There is... I'm staring at this picture right now as we speak of one of the restaurants in Lima that I got, every time you usually get ceviche, you usually get corn next to it, and Peru has, um, oh, let me pull up the exact number, but like 20 types of corn in Peru. Okay, so there's 55 variations of corn in Peru, and they are not just like the corn we see here in the U.S. on Thanksgiving that are different colors. I mean, these kernels of corn were as big as quarters. Quarters, if you don't believe me, go to my Instagram, go to the Peru highlight, and you'll see it, it's about the sixth picture in. These kernels of corn were the size of quarters. 55 different variations. A lot of it was like that we had with like the white sweet corn that was served with the fish. So your plate of ceviche, which is their most notable dish, which is raw fish, is going to come with lime. You can either get it plain or spicy. And then it'll come with uh, usually corn on the side. And another popular side dish for that is yuca. Yuca kind of tastes like a more bland potato. Um, usually fried and sometimes served with like a sauce, but it's good, especially when you get spicy ceviche. It's going to come in this like hypnotizing red, red fiery sauce or orange that you got and that corn is there to kind of neutralize it. The corn though, oh my God, you can't escape it. You cannot escape it. I just, I, I couldn't believe how big the kernels were, so that is what you'll be eating in areas outside of the coastal cities as well as the coastal cities. Peruvians are very proud of their corn. Um, corn and quinoa were like my two most notable things I ate in Peru that are iconic Peru, Peruvian cuisine. Okay, so that was the bulk of the podcast episode. Uh, I purposely did not get into too many details of my actual trip in Peru because there was a lot of logistic things and each city that I would like to talk about. Um, of course, I will do a episode dedicated to uh, hiking the Inca Trail, which is a four-day, three-night uh, backpacking trip through the mountains of Peru, eventually ending in Machu Picchu. That, I feel like, is just so long, intense, and specific that it's going to be its own episode. Uh, today's episode is more of if you have no idea anything about Peru and you assume that you're, assume that you're going to eat tacos there, Hopefully this episode gave you a more logistic approach at um, what Peru is, why it should be on your map, and how to get there. Peru is, um, I'm going to speak in terms pre-coronavirus, Peru is an up-and-coming tourism city. Um, 
more for its cuisine than anything else because uh, you know Machu Picchu is always there again there's a lot of specific logistic things to talk about for Machu Picchu a different episode it's very detail specific um, it does Peru is a country that does require a bit of planning though so it's going to be a little different than your um, Caribbean and Central American countries where it's kind of good any time of the year. You really need to plan, sit down, and look at Peru as one of those trips that you might have to plan a year in advance at, at minimum. So hopefully this podcast, today's episode, kind of gave you an introduction to Peru and gave you a better picture of what um, everything Peru has to offer outside of what you normally assume. So with that um, if you would like to see any of the pictures of anything I talked about on my YouTube, Emily Allen Travels, or my Instagram. So thank you all for listening. I hope you're all enjoying your um, quarantine. I'm sure I'll have an episode about that because that's a big one. If you like this podcast, go ahead and please subscribe. Tell your friends about it. But most importantly, just subscribe. It really helps me out. Um, and stay tuned for another episode, a few more episodes. This, again, was our first in 2020, so I'm going to be trying to do them a little more consistently and with nothing but time on my hands. I'm sure more things will come. If you have any requests for any specific things that you would like me to talk about, uh, just DM me on Instagram. Uh, that'll be the best way and the fastest way to get a hold of me. And even if you have an ultra-specific question, just DM me. Um, an episode that will probably be coming will be traveling with friends. Um different types of trips but if you have something in your mind that you want to talk about dm me a suggestion and i will ramble my mouth out about it all that i can and i also try and do my research on it but anyway that was today's pro episode please join us again and don't forget to follow carry on the podcast thank you